Coming to you from the greatest city in the world, this is the number one showbiz podcast. It's Talk for Two. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. Thank you, Gary. And as always, thank you to our season sponsors, Axtel Expressions and the Tangent Band Network. Find fantastic podcasts at tangentboundnetwork.com. And all your entertainment needs are at axtel.com. Today, I am proud to welcome the daughter of country music royalty. I swear they are one of country music's original first families. Conway Twitty's daughter, Joni. Plus, later on, we will hear from up-and-coming duo Smithfield, whose authentic and emotional songwriting skills pair perfectly with Conway Twitty's style. Joni Twitty is the producer of a brand new album of her father's work called Timeless. Conway Twitty recorded new vocals to his hits and some covers he loved to do live while on a tour of military shows in the 70s. The previously undiscovered masters were brought to Miss Twitty's attention and she helped breathe new life into the tracks. Produced with some supplemental instrumentation, Timeless comes across as just that, Timeless. Without knowing the story behind the new album, one would guess it to be simply a compilation of the mythic country legend's greatest hits, as recorded way back in the day, as it were. And there is nobody sweeter, more knowledgeable, or excited to shepherd this than Conway's daughter herself. Here now to tell us how this experience has taught her so much about her father's music, our interview with Joni Twitty. All right, welcome to Talk for Two, Ms. Joni Twitty. How are you? I'm great, man. How are you? I am excellent. I can't tell I got to tell you, I'm a stereotypical millennial to the core, but I love your father's music. I have to well, tell you. Thank, thank you so much. It's some great. He left us with some great music, that is for sure. He absolutely did. And I want to pay you a, a roundabout compliment. It, it, it'll take a second. Uh, obviously, for anybody that listens to this show, I'm open about, you know, when you book a guest, you get the press release and you get the album ahead of time and you listen to it. Well, I listened to the album before I read the press release. Or watch uh-huh. the sizzle, and I yeah. did not realize a that they were re-recorded uh, vocals, and b that there was new music on top of it. It sounded everything sounded so great, and and like it could have come out of that era. You guys did so well on that production because I would have oh, never Oh, thank guessed. you, thank you. We were just you know so proud to be a part of it, and to be able to go in there and add a little sparkle on on an already great album, you know, it was just such a, a honor to be a part of that, and, you know, I had sat in the studio with Dad countless hours, and I didn't realize at the time that I was absorbing all of this knowledge from him of what made a Conway Twitty record so great, and to be able to take that knowledge into the studio myself many years later and be able to put it to use, you know, to make sure that this project stayed up to the standards that he would have wanted. You know, it was just a real honor for me to be a part of it. Can you articulate what that is, what you discovered and what you learned that makes a Conway Twitty album so great? Well, you know, it was all about the song. And he was such a person that was a fan of the songwriter and the lyrics and to make sure that nothing stepped on those words and anytime he sang a word he sang everything with emotion and you want to make sure there's not too much music you know covering up that vocal it's the vocal and the lyric that the message is being delivered into the hearts of those who need to hear the message 
And so we wanted to make sure that we, whatever we did was in a tasteful way so that it didn't interfere with the song and with, you know, his delivery of the message. And so we just added a little flavoring right around the, you know, the already great album that we had presented to us. And it was done originally by Dad and his band, the Twitty Birds. So they went into the studio and recorded it just one time through. So it was like they did it live. So the little extra things we added, like the background vocals and the piano and the acoustic guitar, was just enough to, you know, just to fill in the space. And uh, my husband did all the background vocals, and I just, I loved hearing them sing together. It was like magic for me, you know, and it was emotional because I got to hear them together. But I just thought it was such a gift to be a part of this project, and this album is truly amazing. And we're so, yeah, it is. It's just amazing. And, you know, a lot of people might ask, well, some of these songs, you know, have been previously hits of his, and they might ask the question, well, we've already got these songs. Why would we want these recordings? Well, first of all, when someone goes into the studio and they record a song, you know, it's so perfected. They go back and they'll sing a line over and over until it's perfect. And you, after you take the song out of the studio and you start performing it night after night after night, it takes on a whole new feel and it becomes something different. It has a new emotion. And that's what happened with these songs. I think that these recordings are even better Mm-hmm. than the original recordings, in my opinion. And, uh, it, you know, it's it's just like if you were sitting at a Conway Twitty concert, this is what you would have heard. Right. And I, you led into one of the main questions I had for you, which was, do you know the circumstances that led your dad to go back into the studio to do these re-recordings, and why did they sit there unproduced and untouched for so long? Well, we didn't even know they existed. Uh, they were originally done for the armed forces back years ago. Hmm. A lot of the country music artists would do these um, these projects and they would use them for recruitment tools. And Dad's was for the Navy and they called them the Navy Hoedown Shows. Hmm. And after these were done, a gentleman in New York uh, from Country Rewind named Tom bought the Masters and he had them in his possession. And, of course, he can't put them out without the artist, you know, or the artist's family in our situation. He can't put it out without them being involved in the project. So uh, he found a way to get in touch with us, and that's when we said, well, you know, we want to hear it first, because we didn't, we'd never heard it before. And I wanted to make sure before we even wanted to go forward with the conversation that it was something of quality, you know, that Dad would be proud to release. And when he sent a copy of it, I said, oh, yeah, this is great. <laughs> Definitely, we want to move forward. So, you know, when we had our initial meeting, um, he expressed the idea that he wanted to hire a producer and to go in and, and do these special touches like I was talking about earlier. And that's when I looked at him and I said, Tom, you don't need to look any further because you've got me who has, you know, hours upon hours of experience sitting with my father in the studio and absorbing all all this knowledge from him. And, you know, I can do this if you will give me the opportunity. And then I've got my husband, uh, John Wesley Riles, who is 
who was an entertainer and artist for many years. You know, he had 30 charted records and now is one of the top background vocalists in Nashville. And if you will give he and I the opportunity to produce this, we'll make sure it's the best Comedy Twitty record that could be put out. And he fortunately loved the idea and gave us the opportunity. And, you know, it was just such a blessing for us to be able to go in and be a part of this because I knew we were going to treat it with the love and respect that needed to be because, you know, Dad was such a lyric person and such a, a lover of song, you know, the, the, the song. And, and we wanted to make sure that there was nothing that stepped on top of that intent, you know, from to, for him to be able to deliver the song into the heart of the listener that needed to receive the message. That's incredible. And I would have never even guessed the, uh, the circumstances under which it was recorded, that they were shows and concerts. That's, that's amazing that you were able to do everything that you've done with it. I, I do want to ask about a song that isn't on there. Uh, that uh, I think you can guess what it is since I'm talking to you, uh, that that I was hoping, talking to you, that it might be on there. Don't Cry, uh, Don't Cry, Joni. What, was that just not part of the recordings? Did you make a decision not to do it? Because that could have been a cool um, duet now many years later with, with you re-recording your vocals. Well, you know, this was done in 1972, and Don't Cry, Joni wasn't recorded until 1975. Mm-hmm. It was... Yeah, we recorded it when I was 17 years old, and it was uh, not intended to be a single. In fact, I I didn't even want my voice to be on there because I was too shy, and I thought, no, 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 I don't want to do this. And my dad kind of coaxed me into it. He said, well, if you'll come in and put the girl part on, which, you know, I had been singing my whole life. He wrote it when I was about eight years old. He just made it up there at the house, right there on the spot. And he used my name and my brother Jimmy's name and my brother's best friend who lived next door to us. His name was John. So he used our names in the song. And I'd been singing it, you know, with him just around the house and for friends, you know, as I was growing up. And so he asked me if I would come in and put, you know, the Joni part on. And and so reluctantly I did. And I ended up graduating from high school, not thinking any more about it. And I was going to college up in Northern Virginia, and I get a call from my dad. He said, you're not going to believe this. And I said, what? He said, I left your voice on the recording. And he said, I put it on the B-side of my single, which was a song called Touch the Hand. Mm -hmm. And Touch the Hand had already gone to number one, and the disc jockey started flipping the record over and playing Don't Cry Joni, and it took off like wildfire and went on to become a number one record. And uh, he said, we've got a smash. And he said, in fact, the CMA is calling, and they want us to perform the song this year on the award show. So he got to go and record the song. It was just the coolest thing. And, you know, to, to be a kid just newly in college, and all of a sudden you turn on the radio and you hear yourself singing, <laughs> It was bizarre for me, you know. I mean, it was really cool, and I'm glad now that he didn't take my voice off the record, of course, but uh, it was a real honor. But that's why the song's not on here. It would have been great. I wish we could have had a way to have that on there, but it wasn't recorded at that point, you know, when this album was done. That's amazing. That's And that's an amazing story I never knew. Now, I want to ask you, another thing I was reading that you've said is that 
your dad has inspired so many that are stars today, like Blake Shelton and so many yeah. different country stars. Do you see, because these guys, they get a flag for doing the exact opposite of what your dad did, which is yeah. they get the flag for the production and the watering down of lyrics. And some of it deserved, some of it not deserved, in my opinion. But but are there instances where you see that inspiration, that Conway Twitty inspiration in today's artists? Well, you know, Blake has mentioned him in several of his songs, and Kenny Chesney, you know, for years, and I'm not sure if he still does it, but every night he would do the song, I'd Love to Lay You Down, and he'd put a huge picture of Dad up on a screen behind him, and, you know, even though they may not, their styles may go in a different direction and their songs may be not like what Dad would record, you know, they still, they listen to a lot of his music, and they said that, you know, they learned from him and they learned things from him, even though it may not be a direct correlation. There were still influences there, and they're, they're huge fans, and they pay homage to him. And you know, that's a real honor when you know that he has touched so many of these newer, younger artists in different ways. You know, and and it's just a you know a treat when we meet someone you know in the the younger generation of music of today and they tell you gosh you know I grew up listening to your dad and I was such a fan and and it's just a real honor for any artist to know that they've impacted people throughout their lives in different ways especially in a musical way Mm -hmm. I grew up and there would be your brother I'm sure you know this your brother would tour the fair circuit with your dad's music (laughs) and uh, I grew up going to a couple of his shows at some of our local fairs. So Conway Twitty Music has been a large part of my life as well. And so my last question for you, we can spend a couple minutes on this. What makes a song, since this is the name of the album, what makes a song timeless? Well, you know, especially a Conway Twitty song, because he searched long and hard every album. He would listen to 3,000 songs every album. And he wanted to find the 10 best songs he could find to put on an album. And uh, he was all about the story. It had to have a message, a story that, like I say, he considered himself an instrument. He was a tool that was supposed to deliver this message from him into the hearts of those who listened. And anybody who listened to a Conway Twitty song, they would get that message and you know, you get people all over the country that we hear from that say, you know, your dad sang that song just for me. He he recorded it for me and for my life. And, you know, that was that he considered that was his job was to li- deliver the message from the song into their hearts. And, and he did that. And when he would be on stage at night, night after night, and, you know, I got to tour with him mm-hmm. quite a bit because of Don't Cry Joni, and that was a real honor to stand there and see him from a different perspective. I mean, it's one thing as a child growing up, watching your daddy and just kind of playing and not really paying too much attention, but liking what he did. But when you come in from a different perspective as an artist yourself, and you sit there and you watch and you see the power that he had, he could sit there on stage and not move. He didn't swing on the ropes. He didn't run across the stage and play... 500 instruments and, you know, do all the the typical things that got people revved up. He stood in one spot. He never moved. 
just slight little gestures that he would do, and he could take that crowd and whip them into this frenzy and keep them in the palm of his hand from the first note he sang until the last note he sang. And those people came out of there, and they got it. They understood what they were supposed to get from that. He had that ability, and every word, he never threw a word away. You know, when he sang, every word was dripping with emotion, and he knew how to deliver that message to, you know, to the people who needed to hear her. Well, I think that is an incredible place to end it, because that could also be his advice if he were still around to those that do it. Focus on the lyrics, focus on the music, and I think the rest takes care of itself, and he's an example of that. So, Ms. Joni Twitty, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Matt. It's my pleasure, and thank you for playing our our timeless CD, and, and I just want to let people know that they can order it today, actually. It's available immediately on ConwayTwitty.com, or you can wait uh, October 6th. It comes out everywhere, and it will be available in many places. Thank you so much, Ms. Twitty. I am so excited for everyone to go and listen to Timeless. Out now, and you can purchase it at the link below on talkfor2.com if you're listening on our Mothership site. If not, just Google it. Just look for it in iTunes, and you will be able to find it. That is music that never grows old. It's like wine. just gets better and better as the years go by. Our next guest is one of the coolest new vocal duos in country music. Smithfield is comprised of Texas natives Trey Smith and Jennifer Fielder. That is such a cool combination of their names. I caught up with them at a tour stop in Manhattan earlier this spring. We talk about their musical journey and the single Hey Whiskey, an authentically emotional country ballad that has seen great airplay on Sirius XM's The Highway Channel and thousands of downloads each week on iTunes since it's released. It's also been streamed like a bajillion times. The song has led to their being featured on the Grand Ole Opry, including two performances at the Ryman Auditorium. When I sat down with them in New York, Ms. Fielder did most of the talking, but you can tell both of them are extremely grateful. And I got to say this, so genuine. You look them in the eye and you could just feel their love for what they get to do. They are so grateful to play country music full time. Here now to tell us how they took a leap of faith for the music, our interview with Smithfield. Trey Smith, Jennifer Fielder, Smithfield. What a cool way to combine your names. <laughs> Welcome to the show. How are you? We're, we're great. We're great. New York City, yeah. first time really. Yeah. It's awesome. You are here in New York for the Highway Finds tour. So how did the Highway find you? Well, gosh, uh, Nashville, five years. We've been trying to get on the Highway forever because we've seen what it's done for artists like Florida Georgia Line and Sam Hunt. Um, they're a huge artist discovery program and uh, the guy that runs uh, the music there who makes all the big decisions came out to our Grand Ole Opry debut and saw us live and said they're the real deal. I want to help them out and uh, yeah the next thing you know we were on the highway but it took a long time to get there. Wow that's really cool so let's back up. Sure. 28, uh, and if I can say 26. That doesn't sound (gasps) like such a long time. So how'd you guys start? Um, We've known each other since we were little kids, actually. So our grandparents went to high school together. Our uh, our parents went to high school together. And we did not go to high school together, but we've just known each other all our lives through family and, you know, gatherings every New Year's and Fourth of July. So we go back a long way. Yeah, um, Trey reached out to me in college 
and his rock band um, had just broken up. He'd been in a rock band for five years. I'd been doing country music kind of my whole life, and he said, um, how about we start seeing the other? And I was really hesitant at first because I was like, ah, I don't really want to be in a duo, you know? Never thought about it before, but since he was a family friend, I said, yeah, come on over, you know, we'll try it out, and never thought in a million years that that would, you know, come together like it did. I mean, I just can't, it's kind of fate, I guess. We were really, truly meant to sing together. Our voices and our harmonies blend so well, and I knew that that day, and so we decided pursuing that, and uh, that was six years ago. Yeah. Trey, tell me a little bit about that rock band. Um, yeah, we were uh, we were a local band in Dallas, Fort Worth area, and really it was just me and a bunch of buddies that got together and decided to start playing, and that's kind of where I started my songwriting. Um, just kind of formed and, and did a few runs, and we'd always play the same places, you know, over and over again, and take anything we could get. And it just got to a point where, um, you know, I wanted to do something more with it, and uh, they were kind of okay with the hobby aspect of it, so... I tried going solo for like two months and quick, <laughs> quickly realized that's not what I wanted to do. So um, reached out to her and then the rest is led us to here. Yeah. So what were those first gigs? Oh man, uh, have you ever heard of what a, of a fifth quarter? Vaguely. Okay. So fifth quarter in Texas, you know, football is just oh. su- reigns supreme. Oh, fifth quarter. Fifth quarter. Uh, okay, yeah. I thought you were saying chord, like guitar chord. I'm oh, like, no, no, no. no. <laughs> so fifth, fifth quarter. So as you know, in Texas, you know, high school football reigns supreme. And so they have this thing after the games in a lot of towns called fifth quarter. And it's like just, you know, you can go to an open gym and they have food and you can shoot basketball and stuff like that. And we got hired to do a gig at this fifth quarter. And it was like two speakers set up in this corner of the gym while they were playing basketball, mind you. So we had to play a gig and dodge basketballs and dodge balls the whole time <laughs> while we were playing. And my bassist was actually like my blocker while I was singing. It was terrible. But um, a lot of stuff like that. <laughs> it's like that in the beginning. But What about you, Jennifer? How did you start music? Yeah, my uh, family, uh, I've always been around music my whole life, um, would take me to little country music shows in Texas. We have these different shows in each town um, called the, I mean they're called the Opry town the Opry so like mm-hmm. Red Oak Opry and whatever um, so we would I would do that um, growing up and I just always I fell in love with country music and saw that and, and wanted to be a part of that um, so I told my mom you know hey I want to start singing like you know like what these other people do on these shows and so she took me to a bunch of auditions and I grew up since I was nine years old singing in church and then singing all over the state of Texas um, at these different Opry's so that's what I did forever and then in college you know I started doing worship bands and so I've always done Christian and country music but country was always my heart and my soul it's interesting you mentioned Christian I was looking at your Twitter last night uh, God first yeah. Right there in, in, in uh, your, your Twitter. How important is God in, in your life and in your music? Well, I have a little tattoo right here. It says faith. Mm-hmm. And that's really important to me. Um, you know, it's, it's something that I struggle with um, is, is, is having trust and, and knowing that there's a greater plan and mm-hmm. it's out of my hands because I like to control things. I want to be <laughs> in control of everything. And so it's just a nice little reminder to me that, you know, God's got it no matter what. It's, it's out of your hands. So it's really, really important to me. And Trey and I were both, both raised with great families that instilled that in us. And, uh, and yeah, it's, I mean, yeah. Trey. 
I mean, I, I always grew up in the church. My dad was actually a pastor oh, yeah, growing up. So we moved from town to town, and uh, we'd be in different places. And I was just always a central part of my life. And, of course, I went to college and um, discovered more uh, about my faith uh, on my own. And it's just been a very central point of my life. Yeah. And I truly believe a lot of the things that have that have happened for us, it's like it's unexplainable things. It's like, mm-hmm. you know. How, well, how did that happen? How did we just meet that person? How did we just get on the Opry? And so I always think, you know, like, you know, God had that in, in our plans for us. I mean, you can work hard and have the talent, but at some point, whether you believe in God or fate or the universe, something has to intervene there. Yeah. So. I was actually a worship leader before we started singing together wow. uh, at a church. So you're a rock band and a worship rock leader. Rock band. <laughs> what Rock band on the weekends. Uh, and, but... It was funny because when, when we decided to make the move to Nashville, that was something I struggled with a lot because I felt like I was already being a worship leader, so how could I be being called to do something else like country music? When I was already, I felt like I was already doing like you know God's work. So um, that was something I struggled with, but I always feel like she said, something intervenes and you have to listen to it. So Yeah. No, and, and I'm curious, because of where you guys are, I think you, you might agree in this assessment, you are at the beginning of your fame. You know, you, you're, you are at the beginning of a career that I think is going to be incredible um, because of this Highway Finds tour, and, and you were talking earlier about their artist development program. How do you get to the beginning of that roller coaster? What, how did you end up in that room with that right person? A lot of work. A lot of work. Man, a lot of people don't know this about us. Um, we actually had a record deal when we first moved to Nashville. Um, Worked three part-time jobs for about a year and then played a ton of writer's rounds and then ended up getting a label deal. And I didn't realize at the time how lucky and rare that is to get something like that so quick. And so um, three months before our country mainstream radio tour, the label folded. We didn't get our music back. We owed X amount of dollars and here we were, what, I was 23 at the time. Um, just couldn't believe what happened. We were devastated. So at that point, we we, just, we had a decision to make. We could either move back to Texas and say, okay, it didn't work out, or we continue through the struggle and stay in Nashville and try to get another deal. And so we went around to, to labels, and they all said, well, you guys are really talented, but there's just not enough going on here. I, I don't you know, they were kind of undecided. So Trey and I took a step back and said, okay, we know we have great music. We know we have what it takes. Let's take some time here to build something organically on our own. Um, you know, and we, we looked at what other people were doing, and the highway was a part of that. Spotify was a part of that. CMT was a part of that. The Opry. So we had our goals and our sights set on these things. Um, so the first step was we did a Kickstarter and our fans helped us raise over $10,000 to do the EP that you've heard and that's out now, which is so cool to thank them every time. It's like, you guys did this for us. And then uh, the next step was, okay, well, now that it's out, how, do we, how, do, how are people going to hear about it if it's not on country radio? Um, so we got a publicist, took out a loan from a bank, you know, in our own names, for the first time, we were going to be in debt, and we were like, oh my gosh, we have no idea how we're going to pay this back, but we wanted it so bad. Um, so we took that risk, and uh, our publicist started getting us in all kinds of different articles, and the Huffington Post here in New York actually named us artists to watch, and 
and it just it was like a domino effect but that took five years so people don't don't know you know they don't see all the work that goes behind it well that's media all of a sudden it's just in front of media and media puts it out and, right and there's no guys like you are so helpful for that mm-hmm. yeah and it's well, that's why I like to do these longer form interviews because I like to know the story yeah. yeah because the story makes the media message yeah. that much more impactful 100% you know and then you take a song like Hey Whiskey and um, I'm so curious it's such a wonderful spin on a drinking song thank you how'd you guys write it how'd you guys find it um, well, we had a lot of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. Um, you know, we showed up um, with some of our favorite co-writers one day, and she had this title. It was "You Only Miss Me After Whiskey," and she, I guess came to you on the treadmill or something like that. At the, yeah, at I was the at gym. the gym before. And, um, and so she came in that day and had this title, and you know, we all rolled our eyes and we were like, "Oh boy, another drinking song in country music. That's real original." And so uh, we started kind of, you know, messing around with it, and I was playing some melodies on the guitar, and our co-writer, Adam, said, hey, this might be cool if we wrote kind of a different spin on it. He's like, what if she's not mad at the guy? Maybe she's mad at, like, actually the whiskey, like, what it's doing to him, and uh, kind of personifying, you know, whiskey. So we kind of chased that for a little bit, and we hit that chorus and that melody lifting up into the chorus, and I think that was the moment that we all kind of looked at each other like, oh my God, like something special just happened, and if we ever, we said this that day actually, Mm -hmm. if we ever get the chance to play the Opry, we're going to play this song. So then you play the Opry? Yeah, many years later. Fast forward like three years later, and we're making an Opry debut, and we step out there, and we sing Hey Whiskey. You know what's so crazy? We call it the little song that could because it yeah. just keeps going. And again, going back to the label, we, we wrote that when we were on, when we had a record deal. Mm-hmm. And I remember how excited we were. And we brought it in to play for one of the higher ups. And he said, Nobody will ever get that song. It's too dark. Nobody wants to hear that on the radio. It won't work. So it actually didn't make our first record. So, you know, when we got out of that deal and mm-hmm. we got to do it on our own with the Kickstarter program, um, we said we have to have Hey Whiskey on here. It's, yeah. It speaks to people. We see it in our live show. It's like some of the shows we used to play, nobody's ever heard of us before. Um, and they would walk away talking about that song. So Trey and I knew it was... You know what's funny about that song, too? And this is just kind of a side story, but we played it, we played it once right after we wrote it. It was at the Bluebird Cafe, <laughs> and it was so new, and, and she's still mad at me to this day probably for this. I kind of leaned over, and I was like, hey, let's play Hit Whiskey and try it out. She goes, no, I'm not ready. I don't really know it yet. And I was like, let's just try it out. And we started, and sure enough, we botched the words, but we get to the chorus, sing the chorus, and mind you, this is the only part of it we played. Get done, and there was a guy there that was a producer, and he goes, Man, I don't know what that whiskey song was because I know you messed it up, but just from hearing the chorus, if you ever get that figured out, let me know because I want to hear it. And in my mind, I was like, wow, we messed up the whole thing. All he got to hear was the chorus of it, <laughs> but he still wanted to like know more about it. And I was like, this thing has to be special. Yeah. And then she was really mad at me the rest of the night. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's, that's, a, that's a surefire sign that you, you have a hit. And then, you, like you said, you took it to the Opry. How did that opportunity 
uh, come about. And it's it's a chicken and an egg question because what has to come first, the single or the Opry debut? Because you talk about the Opry and yeah. that's how you got on the highway. Yeah. So how yeah. did you well, get I in there? I think everybody's path, every artist's path is different. Mm-hmm. Um, our path was really cool. We, um, the owner of the Opry who's now in charge of the ACMs, Pete Fisher, was a huge mentor for us. And there was a fan now a friend, but first a fan who came and saw us at a little writer's round called the Listening Room Cafe in Nashville. And she just was obsessed with us. She lived in Chicago and she would travel once or twice a month just to come see us play. Then she ends up moving to Nashville, befriends Pete Fisher at the Opry. And for an entire year, she's telling me and Trey, you've got to meet Pete Fisher. You've got to meet him. He's just a wonderful person. So finally we meet him and he loves what we do and he's like i just want to you know keep in keep in touch with you guys so we would meet with them periodically and for about a year and a half we we became really close and he said you know if you guys ever get to a point where i you know because the opera is a big deal to do you have to do something to justify to be in that circle he said you know i'll have you on the opry well during that time another nashville story we play a show at third and lindsley and I had been wanting to meet a lady named Leslie Fram who runs CMT mm. in Nashville. And you might know, standing beside her at the bar the night that we played. She missed our set, but she was there to see somebody else. So I said, so she started talking to Trey and I, and we ended up going to play for her and her staff. And she said, well, I'll, shoot, if you do a music video, I'll, I'll, I'll put it on here. And me and Trey were like, oh, my gosh, that's so cool. So the music video was our national TV debut, which then Pete Fisher from the Opry said, well, now I feel like I have enough to justify putting you on the Opry. It was also right after Huffington had just come out. Right, Huffington had just come out. People country. So for us and our path, to answer your question, it was CMT first, then the Opry, and then Pete had invited the guy from Sirius XM, the highway, to come out and see us live that night. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's just, it's all about relationships. A hundred percent. Nashville's such a networking town. And so you, have to be, you have to be talented. It's really hard. Because we live in, I'm gonna, you know, I'm doing the mining of the phone. We live in this. We, we do. don't yep. live in this. Okay. And I want to live in this. Sure. I love, we were talking in the elevator. I love doing my phone interviews. It's how I got to talk to some really cool people. Yeah. Sure. But sitting down doing this, they're the best interviews out of the whole portfolio. Mm. Because it's all about that connection, isn't it? A hundred percent. It's hard though. It's hard because, you know, people in higher up positions and you know in Nashville have their guard up. Mm-hmm. Labels, publisher, you know, they're always thinking somebody wants something from them. Sure. And that's true to a sense, but also I think Trey and I took the approach of just being who we are. I mean, we're not perfect people, but we, you know, I'd like to think we're good people, personable, nice. So we just befriended, you know, people that we look up to and want to work with someday. Mm-hmm. And again, going back to the God thing, faith thing, you know, staying in prayer and just going, you know, hey, this is out of my hands. Br- bring the people in our lives that, that, you know, that are part of our path. And even though that takes time and it takes a lot of patience, those things came to fruition for us. And we just developed those relationships. And, you know, in return, we, we got some of our goal, biggest goals. Mm-hmm that we've always wanted to achieve, you know? So going back to about 10 minutes ago, yeah. when it all came crumbling down at 23, yeah. 
given that your band had already folded mm-hmm. before and you'd been through something like this before, what was the moment where you said, no, we're not going to go back and have normal lives. We're going to stay here. We're going to push through. We're going to do this. For me, at least, and I think she'll agree with me, we had been um, thinking about, she was in this competition in Nashville and it was CMA Fest and she was going to come up here and sing. And she had asked me to come with her because we had just started doing the duo thing. And so, okay, yeah, let's do it. If nothing else, it's a cool Nashville vacation. And her roommate had just moved in the week before and she walks in on us practicing one day. I used to come over to her place to practice once a week. And she just stood there and listened to us and she said, you guys are awesome. I'm like, oh, thanks. And we got to talk and we mentioned that we were going up to Nashville. And she said, well, I have a cousin in Nashville. She was like, he does something in the music industry. I don't know what it is. She was like, do you mind if I just reach out to him on Facebook and maybe he can meet with you guys? And we're like, oh, okay, yeah. He works in the music industry and, you know, everybody does in Nashville. So, yeah, sure, why not? And, you know, fast forward a few weeks, we're up there. We played this competition that was really kind of just not great. But mm-hmm. the last day we were there, we went to meet with this, her roommate's cousin. We didn't know what he did. So we pull up to this big, huge building on the roundabout there in Nashville, and it turns out he is a booking agent for William Morris Endeavor, which is the largest booking agency in the world. Um, (laughs) And so we're just like instantly just like, oh my gosh, what have we gotten into? (laughs) Go up there, 8 o'clock in the morning, nobody's there, and he sits down and have my guitar. He says, I got 15 minutes, you know, let's talk. We played a few tunes, all covers at the time, because we didn't have any original music yet. And uh, we got done about two and a half hours later, um, after he told us he had 15 minutes. And he said, you know, I'm I'm very impressed by you guys. You obviously have the talent. Y'all sound great together. Um, If you're serious about doing this, y'all need to move here, start networking, writing, writing, writing. That's how you figure out how, what kind of artist you are. And I think when we left that meeting that day, we went back to the hotel and we both knew. And we started talking just there in the hotel lobby and we said, this is, this is what we need to do because this is just one of those one of those God moments for us, you know. This is him saying, yep, this is where you need to be and this is what you're going to do with your life. That is awesome. We are almost at time, but I've never had an in-person where somebody had their instrument with them. Ooh. So I'm going to stop tape. We're going to come back. I'll edit this together. If we could close out with just a few bars of Hey Whiskey. Sure. That would be beautiful. Yeah. Sure. Let's right. do it. And now with a special Talk for Two performance of Hey Whiskey, here's Smithfield.
much for being with me today. I really, really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Trey and Jennifer, thank you so much. I've put a download link to Hey Whiskey in the description below, and I know you listeners will love it. I said, uh, as I said at the top, it's been streamed like a bajillion times, like over a million, and there's a reason for it. That's it for us today. Thanks again to our season sponsors, Axtel Expressions and the Tangent Band Network. Stay tuned to TalkForTwo.com as well as Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for more from the number one performing arts podcast. Reach out by emailing TalkForTwoCast at gmail.com and talk about us on social media using hashtag Talk for two. Signing off, I'm Matt Bailey, reminding everyone out there to keep talking for two. You can hear more show business interviews with the stars at talkfor2.com. <laughs>